Hello and welcome to Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer, and we try our best to understand what they're talking about. With me, not with me. I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> You're with me. I'm Professor Matt Brown, and who are you? I'm Dr. Christopher Kavanaugh. <laughs> Dr. Chris Kavanaugh. Thank you for being with me. Chris Kavanaugh, famous anthropologist, uh, my camp still plays, the center of my winding gyre, the falcon to my falconer. So glad you could be here. Thank you, Chris. How many of those references did I get? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm zero, four, four. But, uh, I'm all right, Matt. I've noticed that I've got two mosquito bites from yesterday, and that's very upsetting to me. It's very distracting, upsetting, unfair. I... <laughs> I just want to complain about it. Yeah, that's that would be disconcerting. Not least because I remember gloating yesterday when I was out in the park with my wife and we were visiting my son's nursery. This was like a kind of sneakily observe your young child playing event <laughs> in Japan. We had to like hide in bushes and stuff. I'm glad it wasn't <laughs> on my own around side. <laughs> uh, looked worse, but... Uh, I was wearing a shirt and, you know, it's hot in Japan and whatnot. And then my wife was more appropriately summer adorned, but she was often having to scare away mosquitoes. And I was saying, look at me. I may look more uncomfortable, but <laughs> wise man that I am, I am protected all over my skin, except yeah. my hands, Matt. Look, don't complain to an Australian about mosquito bites, mate. We're, this is this is our life. No, look, you're native. You were born with mosquito bites. They were like flying around your cot when you uh, came <laughs> out. In my world, mosquitoes were something I read about in books. They were creatures that I heard tale of in legends, not things that I dealt with. The creature I had to deal with in Ireland was called midges. Oh, Which yeah. Is- yeah, I, I heard that. And it really put me off visiting the, the Highlands in Scotland because apparently it's just overrun with midges. And that sounds awful. You don't don't want them. But they don't. The thing is, they don't make that noise. Like when a mosquito goes near your ear, it goes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good impression. Yeah. <laughs> midges. Are just silent beasts. Silent killers. That's <laughs> yeah. right. No, yeah. you're right. Midges are the worst. We have these things called horseflies in Australia, which are like oh fuck yeah, <laughs> they're just these massive like like they're like it's like a drone strike. They're, yeah, they're so powerful. In London, I was at like playing football in the park one night and was attacked by what I subsequently discovered were horseflies. And they just, my leg looked like I'd, you know, been mauled by a cougar or something afterwards. But just these flies. And I like looked at pictures and their jaws are just this contraptions of death. Yes. So- Chris, I have to tell you, we went camping on Stradbroke Island and the, the, the horse flies actually gnawed their way through the tent to get at our tasty flesh. <laughs> Australian horseflies are on a different level. Like I'm imagining that kind of Jumanji situation with a big like pincer poking through the tent and ripping down. So, um, um, well, before before we leave the topic of small insects, I, I you've you've probably seen this too, which is the relationship that Japanese 
people, particularly young Japanese women, have. Are you going to be very racist, Matt? Are you going to refer to Japanese people as small insects? (laughs) Where we leave the topic. The Japanese. (laughs) No, this is going to be reference to a charming little foible of of the the Japanese people who I respect immensely. But I remember once there was like a, a mosquito, a tiny little thing. I don't even think it was a mosquito. It was like less than a mosquito. And... This young Japanese lady like killed it, right? Yeah. And then went and got a tissue and then mm-hmm. carefully collected the tiny corpse of this little thing and then carried it away and put it in the bin. Mm-hmm. Now, for me coming from Australia where you just you know, you just you just you just smear those dead bodies all over your skin and that's just the the idea of collecting them and putting them away in the bin. I just found it really fastidious you're a barbarian man <laughs> you're a barbarian that's not a japanese point well that's a like respectable human convention that we we don't leave insect parts smeared over our bodies after we crush them i actually i'm one of those like odd people that feel emotionally bad after i kill insects of any stripe uh, mosquitoes and insects that bite me Slightly less, this is- because I, I feel they've forfeited, but, you know, they're in my moral bubble of protection, and then they pierce it, and then the revenge is swift. Actually, Chris, that fits with everything I know about you, because I, I know that you are basically a good person, but I also know that you feel that if you are attacked, then you have <laughs> you m- moral... <laughs> yeah, and I'm morally uprighteous towards insects. Less so people, but hey, yeah, yeah and I yeah, don't like no. them. It's like a, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like I don't want to feel bad for myself, so that's why I won't crush a spider. But I don't enjoy catching it and releasing it. You know, no, it's just to stop no, the bad no. feeling, Matt. It's to stop the Catholic guilt. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. I'm an expert spider catcher and taker atterer. Um, good. Yeah. Good, Matt. And uh, so, you know, look, this is, it's just like the Dark Horse or the other podcast that give you this kind of biological moral philosophy insight before we get on to the gurus of the moment. Their insights are fleeting and insubstantial. (laughs) Our chatter about killing insects, that's that's the kind of deep shit that you you can't get in the intellectual dark web or the no, no. I don't know wherever else you go for your insights. So uh, now look, you're welcome. Is, look, we've made a good start on our twelve rules for life. That's this is rule one: be kind to insects. Yeah, forget petting cats. Don't squash insects <laughs> and wash your freaking arm afterwards. <laughs> and, unless they attack you, in which case, kill the little shits. Yeah. 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 I, Rule number one. <laughs> and two. <laughs> <laughs> ten down, uh, two down, ten to go. All right. Before we get started, I wanted to uh, do a bit of... Not before, Matt. We've already started. However, we're, we're in we're, the things. <laughs> Insights are flowing. <laughs> We've well and truly started. So we had some um, feedback on the last episode with Jesse Signal, and we had a really good thread from uh, a mutual of ours on Twitter, Professor Nicholas H. Wolfinger. And he had some thoughts as, as another academic on this topic of how the incentives play out in academia in terms of interacting with popular culture and so on, and also the kinds of overselling that goes on. Like he picked up on a couple of things we talked about. I mean, one of them was you know, of that quick fix psychology with this individualist kind of liberal navel gazing kind of thing that we do 
in the West. And a lot of his work is about the social and structural factors that lead to socioeconomic outcomes. So he made that unfavorable comparison with that kind of middle-class white angst and soul-searching and so on in terms of approaching issues of race around inner reflections as opposed to looking at structural factors, particularly like just the impact of intergenerational wealth in determining outcomes. There's a nice discussion on those kind of topics and the potential conflict and emphasis there. On the most recent episode of Very Bad Wizards, Mm. I listened to it this morning, so it's salient in my mind. So uh, for anyone curious about an an interesting discussion about those uh, values and the potential conflict between them, the opening segment of the new Very Bad Wizards is, is worth seeking out. Mm. There's a free plug for the Very Bad Wizards, a rival <laughs> academic <laughs> uh, adjacent podcast. Yeah, we're, we're nipping at their heels, Chris. We're nipping at their heels. Um, yeah, no, we're, we're not. We're not, just, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> don't spoil it. Don't spoil it, Matt. But, and yeah, you know, we got predictably critical feedback and various people disappointed with us for platforming Jesse and like one thing I want to say is that anybody who thinks that we're reorientating to become like a culture war or social commentary podcast, you're going to be disappointed because we don't have any interest in that. So, you know, we deal with the culture war because lots of the folks that we look at are immersed in it. And sometimes it delivers things that are worth talking about on the podcast, but we are not intending to become like week in, week out, a, a culture war show. So if that's what you want, you're not going to get it here. So I'm just letting people know. What's that thing? Like I'm flagging up people. I'm giving them the advance warning. Managing uh, managing, yeah. ex- managing expectations. Yes. If, that's what I'm doing. Uh, that, kind, yeah. that kind of political commentary can be gotten in many, many, many other places. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and Matt, the other thing I wanted to say very briefly is maybe on the back of the All in the Mind show that was released uh, on us, the Guru Playback Playbook, which if people haven't heard, it's a very nice like 30 minute segment about the podcast and the kind of gurus we cover. But it resulted in us being up in the top 100, actually within the top 50 podcasts in society and culture in Australia for a little while. <laughs> we have subsequently dropped out to below number 200, but but still, we were there for a little while. So what's that thing? Like leave reviews and read us up and, and do all that stuff. And, and actually, yes, also do leave reviews because I'm running out of like cheeky or funny reviews to read. So uh, yes, this is a call for Big us up, big us up and and write cheeky, funny reviews so we can steal your content. (laughs) That's nice news about our transient fame in Australia, but it sounds like a lot of Australians listened to us and were quickly disappointed (laughs) and stopped. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it's just the fickle nature of fame, Matt. We've reached the dizzying heights of like number 40 or something on the Australian podcast charts. And now we're, we're back out. Maybe one day we'll get back there. But the dizzying heights, it was good while it lasted. No, it was. It was. Oh, well. So, Matt, we have... Before you 
begin your usual attempt to get us on track and <laughs> and keep things flowing, let me just take us to our one remaining segment. Mm, Let's just names. fucking do it. All right. Oh, what's that, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Weinstein watch. So I'm serious, Matt. I swear we will not spend a ton of time on this, but it's it, uh, worth updating people on what the the Buffon brothers are up to. And Brett is currently in the news because he's trying to get himself banned from YouTube by releasing all the anti-vaccine, pro-ivermectin stuff that we've covered in previous episodes. He's still going down there. He's had two strikes on his clip account and one strike on his main account and three strikes and you are off the platform. So he, he seems to be moving his attention elsewhere, but he's getting various glowing pieces from like Matt Tybee and Barry Weiss and whatnot saying, you know, silenced culture warrior, uh, the prophet of scientific doom is, is being silenced. And yeah, so it'll be a terrible shame if he gets removed from YouTube. I'll, I'm, I'll be really sad if that happens because, you know, it's it just it provides such insight. Well, we know you're a big fan of censorship, Chris. You're all for it. Yeah. Well, look, I, on that topic, in general, I think it's good to be tolerant of diverse perspectives and to have a relatively lenient view about the content that you'll permit. However, I think you do need standards. And things in the pandemic, like promoting misinformation, demonizing vaccines, and if you constantly, consciously violate terms of service, then getting banned is your outcome. And the people who say, well, this just increases and gives them a martyrdom narrative doesn't seem to have worked out for Alex Jones and Stefan Molyneux and co. They all want to get back on the platform. Doesn't seem to have worked out for Trump. So there are reasonable debates to be had about what deserves censorship or where the barriers lie. But outright promotion of false medical claims and demonization of vaccine efforts I'm not that worried if Brett gets removed. Mm. And in fact, we have an article authored by you and me coming out in The Skeptic uh, magazine, a UK-based magazine today, hopefully, which is a bit of a rejoinder to Heather Haying's article in Area magazine comparing them both to Galileo with these COVID theories. And I I think we set out our point of view pretty well there. So we'll link to that too, hey? Oh, yeah. And so that's that's one brother, right? The mm-hmm. other one. <laughs> hey, it's, I mean, maybe he was feeling that, you know, the anti-vaccine angle was being unfairly capitalized by his younger brother. So he needed to get in on the issue himself. So I'm just going to read two of his recent tweets. I don't know what Anthony Fauci is, but I want him removed and investigated. The world doesn't need Dr. Anthony Fauci. No one is that irreplaceable. Something is wildly off here with these propaganda campaigns. I have no idea what, not a clue, but we need to remove Dr. Fauci. Vaccines work in general. They are safe in general, in my opinion, but rushed novel, universal, and with cryptically silenced opposition by big tech, 
is the antithesis of reason, science, liberalism, and progressivism. It's one compulsory experiment. This is marching toward evil. If there's a fertility consequence, or an autoimmune crisis, or if these kids are dying from a vaccine that is more dangerous than the virus to young people, it will fall to people like me, who spoke out, to restore faith in vaccines, to clean up after Dr. Fauci. Let's avoid that. Saviour of Western civilization, of our civilization. <laughs> yeah, providing access to antimatter technology, theories of everything, and willing to clear up Dr. Fauci's mess with mm. these killer vaccines. If, Matt, if, if they are killing children, if they are <laughs> destroying our immune systems, mm. if, yeah. yes, if. Yep, and if not, then they're doing the exact He still needs to go. He still needs out of there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, it feels like he might be maybe a little bit envious of uh, his brother's... Um, Attention. Traction, attention, and so getting on board because he hasn't really talked about vaccines a great deal, has he? No. Until now? no. Hey, so. You know, he just it, it says what you would expect, but the, if this is the outcome of their sibling rivalry, like oh, for God's sake, <laughs> the, the two of them, they just I don't know. Anyway, we're not focusing on them today. Bye, Weinstein's back, back in your little box for this week um yep. they're still up to nonsense that's all i can tell people they're yeah they're they're yeah. dancing their merry tunes yes um but we are dancing to a non weinstein tune this week we have decided to leap out of the culture wars into the 80s and look at a personal guru of mine one anthony Demello, a Indian Jesuit priest, in, Jesuit's been a, a type of Catholic, and a psychotherapist previously. He was a public speaker and wrote some books on spirituality and did retreats and whatnot. Was popular in the 80s and and died in the 80s He's, as yeah, well. I see, sadly, so, he died in 1987, which wouldn't have been that long after the video that we watched. That's, that's a shame. That's sad. Yeah, that's sort of like before we get started on anything, you know, recently we've been talking about how these Defenders of Western Civilization podcasts that we've been looking at have a particular musical motif with the rising Western classical music. So this made a nice contrast. Here's how this talk by Anthony Devello started. <laughs> Uh, and so on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it just, it's not the same, is it, as the boom, 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 <laughs> like the... No, I like it, though. It's nice. It makes me feel nostalgic for the 80s. It makes yeah. me want to listen to Ice House and In Excess. Very different yeah. music, but... Yeah, these clips and episodes that we were looking at was this video lecture that was recorded called Wake Up spirituality for today and it was three lectures right 30 minute talks he gave and they were combined into a, a, a video series that mm. we 
watched. That would have probably so, been released on VHS tape, Chris. Yeah, yeah. I actually heard them on audio cassette back oh, in the day. Did you? This was, yeah, mm. I don't even remember where I got them from, but I, I had the audio. You know, I needed to turn them over and rewind and all that stuff. So It's an amazing yeah. image imagining teenage Chris curled up in your little Irish... I don't know, cabin, hovel, hovel I, I, I assume. And, <laughs> and it listening. Was, yeah, after all the bombs, that's all we had left, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, t- turning over your DiMillo cassettes. And uh, yeah, yeah. Hiding under the covers, hoping my Catholic parents didn't. What, what spiritual nonsense are you listening to? This heresy, week? heresy. Like, 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 the, like the cardinals of the Inquisition were going to burst in at every mo- any moment, drag you away. Yeah, well, I I do think that's worth mentioning because I will say that like I got interested in my teenage years in like Buddhism and whatnot. And I came across this, this kind of strand of Christian mysticism, which Anthony DeMello was a representation of. And I was really impressed by it because in many respects, it ran counter to the, the kind of Christianity that I would be having, you know, kind of teenage rebellions against. But then after being so impressed by DeMello, I subsequently found out that after his death, Cardinal Prefect Joseph Ratzinger, who eventually became Pope Benedict, conducted a review of his work and released a warning that his books are incompatible with the Catholic faith and can cause grave harm. Oh. <laughs> was he excommunicated or anything like that? Like ex? No, uh, he no. just got a he got a warning on his materials in like Catholic bookshops and whatnot. Mm. So mm. this, so this is the kind of illicit Catholic teachings that you only get in dark alleys in Belfast. Have you got yeah. any Demello waking up tips? Well, I, I think it's good to start with. The, your personal relationship with it because I wasn't aware of this guy and I didn't didn't have your sort of religious issues. But I, I did have my mother's partner and, and her too very much, you know, grew up with a strong Catholic tradition and were also part of the, the sort of 70s, 80s type counterculture-y type social justice-y, um, I guess, reaction to that kind of, orthodoxy and i know that he was in particular was my mum was more of a skeptic but his his whole life was definitely a huge fan of this kind of i guess you'd call it syncretist fusing of what they would see as the best parts of christian teachings and also uh, a kind of a mind opening greater awareness sort of thing which drew upon buddhism and various other faiths so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of familiar with, with the vibe too. Uh, I will say, though, that my spiritual seekings, such as they were in my teenage years, were like strongly tinged with a, a pretty strong streak of atheism and scientific rationalism kind of stuff. So I never, like I had an interest in Buddhism, but like in the variety that skews closer to Sam Harris's like Buddhist modernism, as we mm. discussed with the scholar Evan Thompson. We'll sure. put up that interview soon enough. Yeah. So this was not really me exploring my Catholic heritage. It was more that I came across this because of like an interest in 
people like Thomas Merton and the Vietnamese Buddhist like Thich Nhat Hanh and stuff. And so I, I was more surprised that there was this this wing in Catholicism, and it 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 temporarily made me slightly more positive about the Catholic tradition. And then I found out about the reaction, and it just reinforced my view <laughs> that, that the Catholic Church was corrupt. And so I'm less of a, a devout atheist or very strong about it as I would have been in my teenage years. But I wasn't then, and I am not now in any way like strongly religious person. Okay, good. So just clarifying that for you, Matt. Yeah, no, no, I know, I know. I was being, um, I was implying things that shouldn't have been implied. So he's a great talker. He's a great lecturer. And uh, he intersperses his teachings with quite a few jokes. I've got nice examples of that. So let's play it first, just so people can hear him kind of introduce himself and the topics. Because, you know, it's not culture war. It's not culture war, Matt. He's just... He's a Catholic priest talking about like spirituality topics. So here's him explaining that. But let me uh, begin with something that people are always saying to me. They know I'm a Catholic priest. And so they say to me, could you help us to pray? You know, I've written a book on prayer. Could you help us to pray better? So let's begin with that. Yeah. So just that's it. Just to point out for a start, he's an uh, Indian guy that's where the accent is from but the topic Matt is like it's pretty strongly spiritual and he's talking to a room full of like American Christians I yep. think all white <laughs> yes. by, uh, wearing 80s paraphernalia yeah so it's interesting isn't it he's, he's a Jesuit priest but a lot of his talk is about like it sounds like eastern um, mysticism so that's probably the interesting angle that he's coming from yeah, there's a there's a lot of syncretic content, and that's part of what appealed to me that he makes reference to Sufism, to Taoist traditions, or to uh, like Judaism. basically from all yeah all the mystics from different traditions. There's this guy who comes to see a great Sufi master, and he says to the master, "Master, so great is my trust in God." that I haven't even tied my camel to the post outside. I have left it to the providence of God and the care of God. And the Sufi master says, go out and tie that camel to the post, you fool. <laughs> God cannot be bothered doing what you can do for yourself. Pretty good, huh? But before that, Matt, you mentioned his penchant for telling stories and what what you might refer to as dad jokes. Yeah. So uh, I'll just play two examples of that. There, there are many more, but uh, here's two rather clear ones. I'm reminded of the woman who goes to her doctor and the doctor, the psychiatrist, says to her, did you wake up grumpy this morning? She says, no, he was fast asleep, so I thought I'd let him be. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. That's nice. <laughs> It's, that's classic. That's good, Matt. That was that caused a chuckle, though. Uh, yeah, right? that's that's a good example. Uh, one what, more. What about this one? I, I think this is possibly the zenith of his uh, jokes in the series. Like that guy who stands up on a platform and he says, "I was born an Englishman. I will live an Englishman, and I shall die an Englishman." And an Irishman in the crowd shouts, "Man, have you got no ambition?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
just get an anti English dig in there. <laughs> <laughs> I found his jokes uh, pretty cute. I thought, yeah, they, they worked for me as dad jokes. I thought they were nice. Yeah. And, you know, the other point about the potential for him to be seen as something of a heretic, right? Or a religious radical. It's kind of funny given how relatively mild the stuff that he's offering is. But I can see some of the reason that Cardinal Ratzinger would have took issue with his content. For example, stuff like this. Religion means drop your illusions. Inasmuch as religion helps you to do this, it's fine. Inasmuch as it distracts you from it, takes you away from it, it's a disease, it's a plague, it must be avoided. So, yeah, I, I, I could definitely understand why the Catholic Church would <laughs> consider him to be non-Orthodox. But yeah, like that's another good example where he's kind of talking about like Eastern mysticism, which is that there's something deeper and you, you shouldn't get distracted by the church and the doctrines and the rituals and so on. You need to be embarking on this spiritual journey. Yeah, and he, I, he makes the point that essentially that piousness is not what you should be striving for. And I, I liked that sentiment. Like, it, it appealed to me. So uh, here's another example of that. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and fail to do what I tell you? And they will come to me and say, Lord, we work miracles in your name. And he'd say, I don't know you, not interested. Funny, he was less interested in Lord, Lord than... We seem to be. He was more interested in, why don't you do what I tell you? Yeah. yeah. His takes on the New Testament remind me a bit of Jesus Christ Superstar, actually, because it, it kind of fits with the, <laughs> the sort of hippie version of Christ, yeah? Yeah. And there, there's a, a part in it where he basically makes the claim, which I think would be more startling to a Christian audience in the 80s in America than it is to us now that suggests just being a Christian doesn't actually make you Christ-like or doesn't make you better than other people are more living by his teaching. So he had an ecumenical kind of approach that suggested following the real teaching of Jesus does not require being a Christian. And again, there's a message that the Catholic Church is probably not super in favor of. See, the two types of prayer, there's the Lord, Lord, that's pretty good. There's something much better. Do what I tell you. You know something? There are people who do what he tells them without ever saying Lord, Lord, or even having heard of the Lord. Does that make sense to you? Does it? Does it? Yes, wonderful. And there are people who are full of Lord, Lord, but mighty little else. Yeah. So, yeah, look, um, i got to tell you, Chris, when I listened to this, what I decided to do right from the outset is just put aside all of the stuff about prayer and religion and so on because mm -hmm. none of that's going to work for me at all and nobody wants <laughs> to hear my boring atheist take on religion, right? So what I did is I thought, well, I'm just going to listen to it in terms of life advice, you know, in the same way you might. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it gets pretty interesting, I think, in terms of, in terms of his advice. Yeah, so those elements, they're not really central to the topic. Like the topics, the three topics he covers is how to pray, love, and 
I can't remember what the other one is, awareness or something like that. But mm. in, in any case, like the though although those clips might make it sound like this has quite a anti-institutional bias, it doesn't really. Th- those are like all the clips from the content where he basically takes that stance. So yeah, yep. uh, like it, like it's mostly. Yeah. I think you can mostly think about it as a self-help um, lectures in a way because he's he's giving people advice how to how to be happy, essentially. Yeah, mm. and I, I I will say Matt that the way that you approached it. I approached it slightly differently in that I viewed it as I already know the content. I've like heard it many times before. So I'm going to approach it the way we do with the other gurus and look at the techniques and the rhetorical methods that he uses to construct his argument. And I find a fair amount of them. I think in most cases, they're being used in service of points which are much less objectionable than the people that we usually cover. But at the same time, it it is the same underlying manipulative structure at times to get people to see the validity. So I don't know where you would like to go first. Do you want to talk about some of the techniques or do you want to talk about some of the content that you highlighted? I think we should talk about the content first because I think that'll be the logical order. All right. So... Hit me, tell me what you're <laughs> what you pulled out of his philosophical musings. Okay, and you can try to find the clips that <laughs> pertain to it. I've got them, Matt. I'm like a human clip library. <laughs> Just bang, bang, bang. <laughs> okay, so I think one of the really important themes that these lectures are about is well, the first one is about detachment. And mm-hmm. he really emphasizes that a lot. So he focuses on the idea that it sounds very Eastern to me where all of the things that we attach to, which is recognition or success or possessions and so on, are really like a drug that is actually addicting you and putting you on this wheel that's just causing further unhappiness. And what you need to do is is detach. Let's take a look at those world feelings. They're not natural They were invented by your society and mine to control us. They do not lead to happiness, only to excitement and thrills and anxiety and emptiness. And think of your own life. Is there a single day when you're not consciously or unconsciously attuned to what others think, what others feel, and what they will say about you. So he really, he takes that in a quite a strong direction because he really thinks we shouldn't be looking to others to provide any kind of support or approval and that we should not be relying on other people in terms of relationships and with children as well. We shouldn't be conditioning them or programming them to become trained to be sensitive to uh, approval or disapproval. So I thought that was a pretty interesting theme. Yeah, and I there's various clips that I can use to illustrate that, but let's start with the ones that highlight the situation as he diagnoses it uh, for people in their normal everyday life. 
And there's another mystic who says, human beings are born asleep, they live asleep, and they die asleep. But that is so true. Maybe they're not born asleep. They're born awake. But by the time they develop their brains, they fall asleep. <laughs> and they, they breed children in their sleep. They, they bring them up in their sleep. They go in for big business in their sleep. They go into government in their sleep. And they die in their sleep. They never wake up. That is what spirituality is all about. To wake up. You're moving around in a drunken stupor. It's as if you were hypnotized. You're drugged. And you, you, you don't know what you're missing. Yep, now that's a good illustration of that. That one, I think, is angling it towards the theme of like waking up, right? The awareness or enlightenment or like introspection that if you're in this state where you have an unexamined life and and you can continue like that and, you know, your life will go through. But if you start to look at it, in the way that he suggests for spirituality or whatever process that it will be transformative. And I think there's the negative and positive ways about framing that, but let me play just one more clip map, which I think this veers more towards the negative side and slightly more manipulative side of that framing. How would we get out of this? How would we awake? How do you know that you're asleep? I told you that in the previous program. Are you upset and disturbed? Do you have problems? Are you not enjoying life? Never doubt it, you're fast asleep. Think of a little child. It's given a taste for drugs. As it grows up, the whole body of that child is craving for the drug. To live without the drug brings a pain and a suffering so great that it seems preferable to die. You and I, as children, were given a drug. It was called approval. It was called appreciation. It was called praise, success, acceptance, popularity. Once you took the drug, society could control you. The tentacles of society got into you. You become a robot. Mm. Yeah. So he takes that sort of ascetic and detachment theme pretty far. And like you were hinting at, Chris, I think, look, there's, there's a super reasonable and helpful moderate interpretation of that. And then you could also imagine it being taken too far. For instance, he talks about dealing with difficult people, for instance, at some point and, and how mm -hmm. reacting to them and letting those sorts of negative energies and taking that on and being sensitive to these people being up, unhappy with you for whatever reason is not healthy and it's good to, I guess, detach from toxic people. And, you know, that's obviously good advice. But that more extreme version, which is that, any kind of social feedback, <laughs> yeah, that, that say children might receive, that we should be insensible to that. That that's that seems pretty extreme and sort of a little bit inhuman. Yeah, so I think some of the descriptions come close to 
echoing what we would now regard as like tropes and red pill narratives, right? Like seen through the matrix. And like to some respect, it's actually them that are aping this language, right? Because this came first. Spiritual breakthrough language or transformative self-experiences is what the red pill culture warriors are, are drawing on and what the matrix drew on when it was covering these things. But in framing it about society has got its tentacles into you, it's controlling you, you're being manipulated and you're asleep, you're in a docile state, right? All of that sits uneasy with me because basically you can make those arguments and there's validity to how we're socialized and how we're brought up and and taught and we develop psychologically unhealthy habits and whatnot. But you can use that rhetoric to justify any insight that you want to package the people. Mm -hmm. So I think the insight that he's packaging is actually relatively useful for people and not so harmful, but you could use it to promote a Weinsteinian worldview, mm. for example. Well, that that other thing though, which is that it's society that corrupts, that we're kind of born pure and very quickly become corrupted by the, the corrupt world in which we're in. And that the spiritual journey is a way of waking up out of that is, is that's a very old theme, obviously. And yeah, I, I don't quite buy that. <laughs> um, and uh, when I say it's inhuman, I think, you know, to, to encourage people to not have any attachment to, say, their family and not be, you know, be significantly affected, not in a truly deep sense by, say, the loss of loved ones or whatever or being rejected by, you know, someone that you love. Yeah, that bothers me a little bit because I think that kind of philosophy, and it is kind of an aesthetic type of philosophy, is one that just sort of denies, you know, the fact that... Humanness? Yeah, where, you know, you and me, baby, we're nothing but mammals type thing. <laughs> so, look, the other thing, this could be off topic, so we could talk about it later, but talking about his rhetorical techniques, uh, there was one little thing there which stuck out to me where he was talking about, you know, the, the story where Jesus lost his temple with the money lenders in the temple and, was, sure. you know, drove them out and whatever. And he mentions that, but he says, oh, no, 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 he wasn't really... <laughs> disturbed or angry about that because see that that doesn't fit with with his model of jesus being this sort of ascetic detached ideal and i i just didn't really buy it <laughs> okay jesus was disturbed with the money lenders we could add one more how about the agony in the garden now you mustn't take those money lenders as being literally losing his temper I told you, you could get into action, but you want your blood pressure to go up? You could swing into action, you'll be more effective. You know how the surgeon swings into action? When he cuts. And if he was really disturbed in the agony, isn't it wonderful that he would also sometimes suffer from his programming, as we suffer from ours, and pretty soon he steadies himself? Because we're told that he steadies himself pretty soon. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. Well, let me, so let me play uh, some clips. I think to illustrate this. So this one, I, I think, further highlights the possible parallels with the red pill 
narratives. Is there a single day when you're not consciously or unconsciously attuned to what others think, what others feel, and what they will say about you? In other words, controlled by them, marching to the beat of their drum. And look around you and see if you find anyone who is freed from these feelings, world feelings. Everywhere you will find people immersed in these world feelings because they live soulless, empty lives. <laughs> so, if, <laughs> so, so if you have feelings, <laughs> you're leading yeah. a soulless, empty life. I mean, that's uh, that's one of the worst terms. But the notion that look around, they're all NPCs with no souls. Like, tone down the rhetoric, man. Like, you know, they're all right. But so you know, he's trying to argue that. The people around, like this, this conditioning by society, that because people don't reflect on it, that it causes them suffering, right? And he wants to argue that he has an alternative perspective, which is a way out of it. Now, the part, Matt, that maybe, then this might be buying into his rhetoric, but where you point out losing attachment to your family or loved ones, for example, is bad. There's this two-step that mystics do in that argument where they essentially argue, no, that's the wrong interpretation. It's not that you don't have those attachments. It's that you have them all, but your reaction to that attachment has changed. How do we get this? Through understanding. I talked about those illusions of ours. If you would see your illusions and your erroneous ideas, they will drop, you will change. But that you have to do. No, I know what you mean. In fact, I was going to say something similar, thinking of the rejoinder. And it's almost like they say, yes, you know, you should still want things. You should still try to achieve things. You should still care about things. If if you do what I'm suggesting, you will still feel emotions. You'll feel sad sometimes. You'll feel depressed sometimes. You'll feel angry sometimes. But you don't attach to those. They're like clouds in the sky, to use his metaphor. You're the sky. You're not the clouds. Now, suffering means to be disturbed by your pain, by your depression, by your anxiety. It's quite likely that as you embark upon this way of prayer, in the beginning the depressions will continue to come and the anxieties will continue to come. But you know, in the old days, these were like clouds that passed through the sky and you identified yourself with the clouds. Now you're the sky. You're detached from them, but they continue to come and go. Before enlightenment, I used to be depressed. After enlightenment, I continue to be depressed. Well? So, I'm not sure if that fixes the argument, though, because it's like detaching from, like, you're still attached, but you're kind of detached from the attachment. And, like, how is it different? It's different in a very ineffable kind of way, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I, and I think what the argument is that you can't describe to someone what enlightenment is, it's something that you experience. So it's very much so that it is ineffable. So I think I have a clip which is on that topic. Um, Let me see. 
there's a great master who was asked by his disciples, what did enlightenment bring you? And he says, well, before enlightenment, I used to be depressed. After enlightenment, I continue to be depressed. <laughs> but there's a big difference. Suffering means to be disturbed by your depression. That's what I mean by suffering. And, the, the, uh, and there's many ver variations of that saying, right? That, uh, before I was enlightened, I saw the mountains, and afterwards I, I saw the mountains. So, you know, the Zen, the monk traveling on the ox and whatnot. But yeah, and in that case, I think there is a paradox, but it, it's potentially resolvable if you accept what they claim. And that's the issue with Sam Harris's approach and so on that you've talked about as well, Matt, that like, ultimately, it's a soteriological claim about salvation or about enlightenment, right? That this is, this is people saying, once you get there, you will still act, you will still do things, you'll still feel emotion, but there's something fundamentally transformed, yes. right? And, and maybe... <laughs> like you, there's no way to know that except I think DeMello and Co would say when you look at the mystical writing from all across the different traditions they were all saying that yeah yeah uh, I think it's it's identical to the rationale that's behind seeking enlightenment where it can't be described and there's an apparent paradox there and it's it's most clear when he talks about depression he said if you follow mm. his advice you'll still feel depressed sure but it won't bother you. <laughs> and it's like, well, you, like that, that's a little hard to wrap your head around, I think. And like, you can kind of get what he's saying. And in fact, look, look I'm trying to, to be sympathetic to it. There's a way in which probably there's some truth to that because I could be wrong about this, but I think it's reasonably effective that there are ways to train yourself to deal with, say, chronic pain. And, mm. and, I, th and I, I think, if I remember correctly, one of the ways to do it is to try to focus on it, appreciate that it's there, but sort of detach yourself from it. And my understanding is, is that kind of attitude can be, for some people, a reasonably effective way of dealing with the pain. And so if you do that practice, you're not going to be free of the the pain, the, the physical pain, but it it does help. It's, that's the impression I get. Anyway, have you heard of that, Chris? That kind of yeah, and I think this is the segment that you were referring to. So the idea is: suppose a child is handicapped or a child is sick. You know, I know a Jesuit who is a polio victim, and he he's really crippled and handicapped. He's one of the happiest people I've ever met. It all depends on how the child society and family reacts to that. If they think it's a calamity and there are oohs and ahs, then of course, this is what the child is going to pick up. I've seen people in awful health with cancer, suffering intense pain. But you know something? They're happy. They're happy. They're not suffering because suffering means you're fighting it. Yeah, so taking like a maximally charitable point of view, I can see how that kind of thing can be good advice because, you know, life's going to deal your lemon sometimes, right? And mm -hmm. there's not going to be anything you can do about it. But what you can do is change your attitude to the adversity and adjust your perceptions such that it isn't the overriding thing that determines whether or not you're basically okay and, and happy. So Think of something that is disturbing you 
right now, during these days, or something that disturbed you in the recent past? Think. An attempt to understand that the disturbance is not coming from outside, not from the events, not from those things, not from the fact that somebody died, or that you made a mistake, or that you met with an accident, or that you lost your job, or your money. Uh-uh. Mm-mm. Doesn't come from there. It comes from the way that you are reacting to the event, to the person, to the thing that is upsetting you. Yeah. And I think, like, you know, we've criticized with Goop and on other, uh, like, JP Sears and stuff, this excessive focus on the self as being the most important element. But in some respects, again, there's a parallel here in the narrative, which is that what you need to work on is yourself and your reaction. The external circumstances are what they are, but the key thing for your happiness is to transform yourself. So here's an illustration of that. A woman who claims that she hasn't been loved and she needs it desperately. She goes to the movies and it's a great comedy and she's roaring with laughter. And for 10 minutes, she's forgotten that it's necessary to be loved and she's happy. What do you know? When she comes out of the theater with her friend and she sees her friend go with her boyfriend, uh, then she thinks, nobody loves me. I got no boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and he has a point, right? Like I, I think there's validity there to the fact that it, it can be helpful. And I think a lot of therapy does this to realize that a lot of your suffering is self-inflicted. Your circumstances often are beyond your control. Mm. And like you say, Matt, you know, it's human to react in a, to like abuse, physical or mental in, in certain ways or extreme stress. But, but there are also steps where you can stop inflicting additional injury to yourself despite the outside circumstances. And I think there is validity to that. But taken too far, mm. it becomes this view that all that matters in the world is your internal reactions to things. And maybe that fits with stoicism and those kind of philosophical traditions that you can be like tortured and uh, kept confined, but nobody can imprison your mind. Mm. And I think that there's validity there, but also people can do a hell of a lot <laughs> to you. And, and it, you know, there's only these heroic figures who could be burning themselves to death and keeping their mind in control and there are buddhist monks that have done that in protest and so on so it can be done but i i think that that is verging on inhuman levels of mm. self-control yeah no i think sometimes it seems like our takes are always this kind of you know golden mean kind of moderate takes which is yeah you know a little bit's okay but you go all the way it's it's a bit weird so i think that's the case here like if i if i think about what he's saying in terms of this achieving enlightenment and perfect happiness where you're completely detached from everything. And then I see these logical problems, you know, between being depressed but being fine with that. And I see sort of epistemic problems in taking it on faith, as you hinted at. But if I 
listen to it more as kind of aphorisms and life advice for people, then it can be pretty good, right? So for instance, I'm thinking particularly, let's say you're a socially anxious person and you're a bit neurotic, you're a bit codependent with your partner, you're you're worrying too much about what other people think of you, you're thinking that your happiness rests entirely on your partner doing X, for instance, and so on. Then for, for someone like that, then a bit of this kind of stuff is excellent advice, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And that, like, so the insight that I find valuable as a teenager and that I still think applies is in reference to reacting to situations where you're dealing with difficult people or hurt or that. So here's an example of that. So with these two provisos, I'm not going to protect you from the consequences and I'm not going to push you around. You can do whatever you want and take the consequences. But I'm not disturbed. Imagine you're waiting in a line for a ticket and somebody breaks the line. Can you imagine how crazy it is that because someone has misbehaved, you're going to punish yourself? It's like taking a sledgehammer and hitting yourself on the head. You're going to get angry. You're going to let your blood pressure go up. You're going to lose your sleep. This is crazy. And everybody says it's normal. Well, they're all lunatics, that's all. (laughs) They're lunatics. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, like imagine the kind of person who gets afflicted by road rage. And a lot of people do, yeah. They just get angry driving. Yeah. That's always struck me as a very weird thing. Um, You know, that's good advice, obviously, isn't it? I find that helpful that, you know, when you're ruminating on something that somebody did that was unjust to you or that hurt you, that, like, that person's not there now. So if you're playing over the hurt in your mind and like feeling depressed because of it. It's a natural reaction. Yes. But you're doing it. Yeah. Right. That's right. And, yeah. and, and that to me as a teenager was very insightful. Yeah. I can imagine it'd be very helpful for an angst teenager, which I'm sure you were, Chris. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, yeah, like I think in moderation, this stuff is excellent advice. Like the idea of detachment and not being overly sensitive to the kinds of rewards and punishments that other people like to deal out to you. So Im- mm. imagine dealing with people on Twitter or dealing with someone, <laughs> just for yeah. instance, or, or dealing with a toxic work colleague. Then anyone who's dealt with toxic people know that they are very good at dealing out the, <laughs> the rewards and and the punishments to attempt to I guess, train you essentially to do what it is that they want. And everyone has encountered those sorts of situations to one degree or another. And so some detachment from people is great. But when he took it further, then I think you could go a bit wrong because, you know, if you're talking about raising a child and that it's somehow bad to ever reward them or or discourage them from anything, then that's bad parenting advice. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it, like we're, you know, we're social mammals. We're social creatures. We actually need a bit of social feedback and we should actually pay attention, attention to if we're not going to become psychopaths. So, you know. Well, Matt, I, I think Follow DeMello has an answer to that complaint of yours. Let's, let's just see. Okay. Would you stand up, please? Matthew. I'm trying to imagine myself as a parent... Uh, treating my child without without praise or affection or encouragement. That sounds like 
when you describe it as a drug, as a bad thing to give a child, I, I, I just can't imagine myself being a good parent, a loving parent, and not giving that to a child. Okay, great. Affection is fine. Did you hear me say affection wasn't all right? A parent giving affection is fine. But think of this. We're all busy telling people that they're okay. You know why? Because somebody told them they were not okay. And you know something? You're neither okay nor not okay. You're you. Hmm. Think about that, Matt. <laughs> put, that, put that in the bike pipe and smoke it. Yeah, I, I am that guy in the audience. <laughs> and and I, I didn't find his I answer. His answer. <laughs> I, didn't, I have to say, I wasn't convinced by his answer. No. Sit down, please, Mr. Brian. <laughs> uh, you know, this image of the little robot that is controlled by praise and criticism, I think it's quite a powerful image, though. Here, here's another clip of him talking about that. You want to see... What kind of a robot existence human beings live? Listen to this. You've got the robot who comes here, and I say, My, you're looking pretty! And the robot goes right up. I press a button called appreciation, and right up it goes. Then I press another button called criticism, flat on the earth. Total control. We're so affected by this. We're so easily controlled by it. Yeah. Are well, you a little robot, Matt? <laughs> Can I, I push a, your buttons? <laughs> I, I am a robot. Yeah, I mean, what, you know, when you think of the gurus, some of the gurus that we cover and, and how sensitive they are to attention and acclaim and how that seems to drive them, then it sounds pretty good. And, yeah, it's a powerful metaphor, isn't it, that to stop being a robot and stop being on this wheel of punishment and reward that we need to detach and and go inwards and somehow engage with this something, this ineffable light or something. But I'm just not sure what what happens then. Like, how do you behave differently? And do you not pay any attention to the um, effect that you're having on other people? Or does your inner light guide your decisions like for instance at another point he talks about how we shouldn't be fixated on success and the, the markers of achievement and so on but then he very quickly says i'm not saying you shouldn't try to do things i'm not saying you shouldn't try to achieve things you should still do that and my thought was well why <laughs> yeah mad 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 you're just <laughs> reveling in your unenlightened state uh, looking looking down from the bottom of the mountain and saying, what's it like up there? <laughs> I cannot conceive. But, <laughs> but yeah, like I said, I think that a lot of that are common questions that, and complaints that people have. And the mystic's response in all traditions is to give unsatisfying answers, which essentially say, you'll know when you do it. Like, yeah. I can't tell you. And there's like, <laughs> there's a manipulative element to that because in that case, like, why don't you just follow L. Ron Hubbard when he says, look, do Dianetics and you'll, you'll understand once you do it. And I, I think that's the issue, that this is open to abuse. And even the people that are well-meaning, like, we often talk about things being a spectrum, and I don't think it's the case that there are pure-hearted saints from respectable religious traditions and history, and there are the manipulative cult leaders, right? There's a spectrum there. There's people that are conditioned by their 
religious and cultural upbringings as well. And there, there's probably nobody that's ultimately completely pure. Mm. But, I, but I think there is a spectrum in regards to the level of harm yep. that can be done by encouraging people to do that. And mm. yeah, so I, I don't have the answers for you, Matt, because I'm not on that fucking point. <laughs> I, I, I you're down here. <laughs> you're, you're wallowing down here with me and we're loving it. Um, look, I think you make a good point there, which is that he is using the same appeal to revealed truth that L. Ron Hubbard would be making. And everything I've seen, he seems like a lovely guy and his advice largely seems good and helpful. He doesn't seem in the least bit toxic, at least from this one lecture series I've seen. But as you say, he's still doing the same structural argument that a lot of much more toxic people do. So it probably sounds a little bit like this episode is us trying to red peel people into some kind of hyper-rationalist, <laughs> uh, atheist type framework. But this stuff is normal. Like this kind of rhetorical um, tricks are seen everywhere. And it's not like, you know, okay, here's a guru, therefore they're bad and harmful. What we have here is someone who who doesn't seem harmful, who seems very nice, um, like who knows? Maybe he's been <laughs> molesting yeah, his followers it could be and a stuff. Child yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, he, they he all are, Matt. <laughs> they all are. I kicked the red pill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, look. I mean, just my my gut impression is that with with stuff like this, like uh, I read it on just a psychological level. Like, so take out all of the religious and the metaphysical and the spiritual mm-hmm. aspects, right? Just remove all of that from what he's saying. And imagine that he's just a straight-up self-help type person giving a motivational lecture or whatever. It's it's kind of not bad psychological advice on a purely psychological level as long as he doesn't take it too far, you know. If he dropped the extreme asceticism and just stuck to the more mundane kind of advice, then I'd say it's pretty good psychology, there's a funny part in it, Matt, just to mention in passing. I don't know if you ever came across this book. It was popular in the 80s, I think, called Games People Play. It was like a psychology book documenting these kind of psychological interactions. And it was highlighting the pathology, right? Like a, an example is that, you know, somebody might present a problem and then people will offer solutions. But the game version is that, the individual doesn't want the solution, so they will shoot down all the problems. Yep, and yep. it was like this, it was kind of like a self-helpy thing, yep. but he makes reference to it. And I'd read that book as well. So it's just interesting because it dates it, you know, to that period. To that period. They want to be miserable, though they don't know it. <laughs> you read that book, Games People Play, and you'll discover how they're unconsciously wanting to produce their suffering. So they don't like the good part of the good news, but they don't like the new part of the good news. People, they say they want to get out of their suffering, but they they don't. And and that, that sentiment, Matt, I think we touched on it already, but it can lean towards potential victim blaming, in a sense, right? So li- listen to uh, this clip. Somebody broke his promise to you? Somebody rejected you? Someone abandoned you? You know something? No one has ever hurt you in the whole of your life. No one. No event has ever upset you. This was done by you. In fact, it wasn't even done by you because we wouldn't do this deliberately. It was done 
by your conditioning, by your programming, by the way you looked at things and at life. That's what needs to be changed. Well, in an interesting way, that's related to the episode with Jesse Signal and some of the comments from Nick Wolfinger, right? Because uh, I think it's a common problem both with, I guess, spiritual mysticism, but also psychology generally, which is that individualistic internalized focus, which is that don't, don't worry about the world, look inwards because all the problems lie there and with you. And yeah, I can see how that can have problems in ignoring things that do need to change, problems that do need to be fixed, structures that do need to be revised. So yeah, I think just that's a common tension, not just with this guy or a particular gurus, but with the whole the whole area really. Yeah. And you know, if you if you consider it, I mean, I always in this kind of situation, think not about just people having difficulty with partners or whatever, which is, I think, what he's mainly talking about. Yeah, that's about. what he's... But I'm instead thinking about, like, somebody who suffered child abuse or something, right? Was that really nobody ever hurt you? Nobody inflicted anything that you didn't do to yourself? No, yeah. they did. And your reaction to that, it's not just about your societal conditioning. It's that you were genuinely abused right and so i i think there's an issue with minimizing the potential to look at like external causes right because anthony debello and all the people like him want to move the focus onto you and your psychology and what you can do and that might be helpful but i think it requires that you downplay the harm that other people can do to people in their lives and it does it in such a way that it's it's potentially deceiving and, you know, in a way, gaslighting that you weren't properly abused. It was your mental reaction to the abuse that did it to you. Mm. Well, I mean, I, maybe I'll try to defend him a, a bit here, which is that I, I, you're right. But I think in fairness to him, I think in his mind, he's talking to like middle class, first world people who haven't had terrible adversity. He may be wrong about this, right? I mean, who knows what's happened with some of those Christian <laughs> families in the audience. But, you know, in, in his mind, he's, he's talking to people that do not have, not, um, you know, ground under the wheel of oppression and are not kind of in the sort of wrapped up in some sort of desperate scenario of interpersonal abuse, but rather people that are, are sort of unhappy and wondering what's wrong with them, given that they don't have any huge problems in their lives. So, I think you're right, but I, I think he's talking, at least in his mind, to a different audience. Yeah, and I think he does fall on this tendency to redefine words, right? So, like, in the kind of way that Candy did, for example, he redefines common words to have definitions where they don't mean what people expect them to mean and then says, aha, so you are wrong because you're holding the common definition, but it's more like, well, but you've just <laughs> replaced a, like a common understanding with a new specific definition. And what's an example that, of this? Uh, what's an example of this? Um, love. Uh, so <laughs> let's see what love, <laughs> let's see what love is. <laughs> <laughs> 
Or actually, this is more like what love is not. But um, okay, we got to go there first. Either way, I want you to show me. So let me begin by telling you what love is not. And then indicating, however vaguely, what love is. Love is not attraction. I love you more than I love anyone else. Translate. I'm more attracted to you than to others. How does that sound? You draw me more than others. You fit the programming in my head better than other people do. Not very flattering to you. Because if my programming had been different, remember how people say, what does he find in her? What does he see in her? Ah, <laughs> uh-huh. They say love is blind. Attraction is blind, not love. There is nothing so clear-sighted as love. Mm. So, Matt, do you have a slightly better grasp of what love is now? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, Like, okay, let me make the one point here. I actually think maybe this is the worst section for me to have done um, because... I, I think the argument he wants to make here about separating a kind of spiritual, all-encompassing love for humanity, for the world, for your fellow being is, is very distinct from what we talk about with romantic attraction and affection and infatuation. And, and in large respect, I think he's right about this. And even in the respect that romantic infatuation in long-term relationships usually has to give way to something which can also be called love, but which is not the kind of thing which people sing about in love songs, typically. Sure, sure. So, you know, but that's not a new idea. You know, the the Greeks had seven different words for different types of love right and you know different philosophers and stuff like that mm-hmm. was it was it socrates or somebody would did the same kind of things talking about how the only thing worth loving is with knowledge or wisdom or something and therefore <laughs> blah 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 i can't remember how it goes but you know they do a lot of tricky things with that and the the general impulse of philosophers and mystics is they're not a fan, right, of of erotic, <laughs> yeah, of, of, of erotic love and passionate love or obsessive love and 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 just the kind of mundane, you know, the, the kind of love that someone like you would have, for instance, Chris. Like they totally against them. I don't have that kind of love, Matt. <laughs> My heart is much too bleak for that. But like, that was, I want to play an example of him talking about just how much disdain he has for that version of love and perfect love casts out fear. Wherever there's desire of the type that I described, it always goes attended by fear. So love is not desire. Love is not attachment. Falling in love is the exact opposite of love. And it's canonized everywhere. It's a disease. Everybody's trying to give it to you. You find it in your movies, in your love songs. These are need songs. 
<laughs> he's sounding very. He's sounding much more like a Jesuit there, Chris. Um, Love is a disease. <laughs> <laughs> your attachment yeah. to your partner is here. Like it, uh, yeah. you know, there's other parts in this, but it it comes across as a Jedi. At yeah, some yeah. Part, you know. Yeah, attachment well, leads to well, love. Love well, leads yeah, jealousy, yeah. jealousy to anger. There's <laughs> a reason for that, right? Because the fucking Jedi's are just modeled off like Buddhists and yeah. and Christian mystics. So yeah, so he's a Jedi, Matt. This is this is what it's about. Yeah, I was gonna say it's no surprise that uh, that he's so down a lot because it, I mean that's definitely where the Venn diagram of Christianity and Buddhism mysticism kind of overlaps because for different reasons or similar reasons they just weren't fans of very strong like say familial attachments because you know god needs to come first yeah or if you're in the buddhist tradition then enlightenment or something needs to come first and those sorts of attachments belong to the the corrupt mundane world around us so they don't want us to be distracted by that yeah and matt so the you know part of the reason I liked Anthony DeMello was because I was interested in Buddhism, right? And there's a lot of echoes of Buddhism in this, and, and sometimes very explicit, like this example. Centuries ago, Buddha had these marvelous words to say. The world is full of sorrow. The origin of sorrow, the root of sorrow, is desire. The uprooting of sorrow is desirelessness. Let's translate that better, because by desire he meant a desire on whose fulfillment my happiness depends. And our societies and cultures are the whole time encouraging us to add to these desires. So we're more and more programmed to unhappiness Mm -hmm. and to non-love. So I'm going to defend him again here because... He's right, Matt. I don't think he's yeah. right with you. No, as, yeah. as long as you don't take it too far, then that's good advice, right? So the kind You just of, liked it because it was anti-materialist. <laughs> no. He checked in. No. Don't care about your Lamborghinis and your pool parties. <laughs> no, I, I love... Uh, uh, no, I don't, this doesn't describe me at all, but I, re- <laughs> I recognize the value in it. Okay, so, you know, obviously to a moderate degree, it's good advice. So you've got the kind of teenage infatuation type relationship. Get and, teenage uh, kicks all through the night, uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. And and that, you know, obsessing over sex and physical attraction, that's a terror. Yeah, I would never do that. Never, 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 never. Yeah, but the... The Have you got ball. lost in the mental images that are dancing for your head? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I forgot where I was going with this. So, uh... <laughs> I wouldn't be interested in orgies and Lamborghinis. I'm just thinking and... of a pool, pool party with cocaine. Russell Brand there um, with his yeah. flowing locks. Uh, yeah. But like, okay, I will say, Matt, that like, I've got issues. I've got issues. I think we should talk a little bit after this about some of the techniques, right? That with that echo some of the gurus. But I will say, I still find profundity in the kind of things that he's offering here in a way that I just don't fucking get when I listen to Russell Brand or when I listen, God forbid, Scott Adams or whoever. But like, even the people that are more on the spectrum of gurus who we've looked at that I think have reasonable points to make. I, I find this kind of stuff 
because it's transparent in what it's about, right? This is a, a Jesuit priest trying to teach people about spirituality as he sees it. Mm. It doesn't pretend to be something else. And, yep. and I admire that. Yeah, I got a, a similar take there, which is I was comparing him to Jordan Peterson, right? Because Jordan, you know, oh, there's obvious Yeah, it's comparison. a lot similar. Yeah. But one thing that's really different is that Jordan Peterson intersperses a kind of a kind of mysticism and self-helpy advice, but he intersperses it with pseudoscience-y, logical things as well. And a guy like DiMello is is 100% one thing, yeah? You, you, you don't see him quoting evolutionary psychology or talking about <laughs> lobsters and going, it's just science, you know? Like, it, it's, it, it, it's, like you said, he's quite honestly... He, he is what he says on the tin, which is a a spiritual mystic, and he's he's being straight up saying this is this is how you can be enlightened as well, and and let you know the real God into your heart as well. So, you know, that's a plus, I guess. That's yeah. That's and I, I, look, I think Matt, this leads on nicely to the point I want to make that there are techniques here which are similar to what we see in the guru sphere. Right? Here's one example. This is, you could see this as a strategic disclaimer. Are you ready to look at things in another way? But a caution in the beginning. Don't take anything that I'm saying because I'm saying it, because it wouldn't do you any good. You've probably swallowed too much from other people. Now, don't you swallow anything from me. I love those great words of Buddha. He says... Monks and scholars must not accept my words out of respect, but must analyze them the way a goldsmith analyzes gold. By rubbing, scraping, cutting, melting. That's the way to do it. On the one hand, openness, receptivity. On the other hand, the willingness to question, to think for yourself. Otherwise, you will lapse into gullibility, into mental laziness. So that's good, right? Like it's good advice. And a lot of it lies in how sincere you take the person to be. But I I do read that as a sincere warning to people. Like don't just gullibly accept what I'm saying. I can imagine a guru saying the same thing but using it in a rhetorical way, right? And like yeah. maybe I'm being too gullible here, but no, no. Actually, well, when you played that, I assumed you were playing it to um, take a shot at him, and I was gonna, I was all prepped to disagree with you. But actually, no, my take was the same. I, I've, yeah, I feel like he's been straight up there. In it's, he's saying, don't just nod your head to what I'm saying because I'm presenting myself as an authority on this, and that I've got this special wisdom. You know, listen to what I'm saying to you. And see if it makes sense to you, and accept it because you think it makes sense. And yeah, as you said, it could you can you can look at it uncharitably and say, oh, that's just a clever trick." To kind of, but you know, no, I think he's I think he's being straight up there. And that's the that's the thing, right? I think which is important. One of the themes of this show, which people should get, is that the techniques that we are highlighting, like a strategic disclaimer, you can still make a disclaimer which isn't strategic, but which is genuine. And those are important. So you shouldn't look at every time somebody offers a disclaimer for a point in like the maximal cynical way. 
but you should be able to distinguish when like a Brett Weinstein offers a disclaimer and then for the next hour does the opposite of what they're saying and then returns the disclaimer. That's different. Like this, yeah. the, yeah. this very much fits with the theme of the rest of his talk. Yeah. So it, it could be a guru technique, but I agree that I am not so sure it is. And, and here's another example of something that we might hear in other parts of the guru sphere. Now, what do you need in order to see things in a new way? Get ready for a big surprise. You don't need strength. You don't, don't need youthfulness. You don't need self-confidence. You don't need willpower. You don't need effort. What do you think you need? You need the willingness to think the unfamiliar, the willingness to see something new. And that's the last thing that most human beings want. As illustrated by Matt. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like for me, the issue there is on the one line, I think it's a, a good message that, you know, you're not asking people to commit to some course. You're not asking them to have specific characteristics or whatever. You're just asking them to be willing to entertain an alternative perspective for a while. But again, you could use that framing to introduce any perspective. Like, what if the world isn't the way that you imagine it? What if there really are pedophile cabals underneath everything? I'm not asking you to sign on to this, Matt. I'm just going to ask you to have an open mind while I explain. And like, do you have the courage to think differently? Right? The same reasoning, but for like QAnon shit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's very easy to give this guy a bit of a pass with those tricks. And I think I think they kind of went over my head a bit. So well, well done, Chris. You, you spotted the book. <laughs> I, mean, I was... I was <laughs> Getting to go back to teenage Chris and say, keep an eye out, Chris. Yeah, keep an <laughs> keep eye out, Chris. An eye. Don't, <laughs> don't, what, don't, 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 don't swallow it. Yeah, so look, I think that's right. So I said, you know, you naturally give him a bit of a pass because he's not smuggling in crazy stuff that smells bad. He's not anti-vax, Matt. <laughs> he's not anti-vax. That'll get my goat. But, you know, it's a little bit like, was it was it Dawkins or someone like that who was down on Christmas and or the Easter Bunny or something and and telling kids that there's an Easter Bunny? So the argument there it sounds a bit silly, perhaps if we talk about the Easter Bunny, but you know I think the argument is kind of sound, which is that the actual content may be innocuous. Yeah, Easter Bunnies are fun. There's nothing nothing bad there or whatever. Hmm. But if, if you're getting people into the habit of of just believing fantastical things then that's a bad habit to get into because it can then be used to believe in stuff that isn't as fun as the easter bunny right it's just a, mm. it's just not a good practice and i actually kind of agree with that so yeah i told my, kid, I told my kids when they were very young there's no santa you're not getting any presents <laughs> there's only rationality and logic <laughs> the cold abyss you're just a sliver of light in between two infinite darknesses Welcome to the Brian family. <laughs> Here's your Carl Sagan, Stephen World, and Richard Dawkins, the selfish gene. Uh, good luck. Good luck. Get on with 
sending your genetics into the next generation because that's my immortality too. <laughs> that's all there is. Yeah. And, you know, they, they cried a lot, but I think they're better people for it. You know. Well, yeah, I've had similar conversations with my children, so that's good. We're getting them mentally prepared for the cosmic evil and callousness of the universe that will consume them and all yeah. of us. But re- relating that back to your point, which is just that it's it's a bit naughty to to use those rhetorical tricks, even when you're not smuggling in anything nasty, yeah. just because it's just a you know it's best not to use them basically if you can avoid it. Yeah, and here's another one which I think is like it's definitely not as bad, and actually touches on your Easter Bunny business, but it's a little bit like I don't think this would be blowing so many people's minds in the. 2020s as it might have in the 1980s but uh, listen to this Matt see what you think afterwards that being an American is only in your head that there are no American trees or American mountains this is a convention that people are ready to die for that's how real it looks to them has it ever struck you that Christmas Day doesn't exist except in your mind in nature there's no Christmas Day but you've got Christmassy feelings. That's right, Matt. Money. It's just yeah. a social convention, construct. not paper. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a social construct, man. Well, I'll tell you what, Christmas doesn't exist in my mind, that's for sure. But, uh, look, you know, that's like, that's, uh, you know, John Lennon, imagine there's no countries, etc. That's, yeah, that's not very controversial. I don't think it would, be, would have been particularly mind-blowing for people in the 80s either, yeah? Ah, uh, maybe, maybe. He was just talking about the beginning of it is, you know, looking down, looking out the window of a bus and realizing there's no border between America and Canada or whatever it is mm. like, yeah. which... Used to, you know, but I, I, when I, when he gave that example, I was just thinking of, yeah, that didn't apply in Northern Ireland. <laughs> 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 you could see the fucking border because there was a militarized <laughs> So, you know, you can't anymore. Now the, that was taken away, though it might come back thanks to Brexit. But um, Yes, the border's, the, the border's very ambiguous. So. It depends where you go, whether borders are physical realities or not. Uh, another point, Matt, the parasocial audience malarkey or maybe not the parasocial but more like praising the audience well that was that's a good question helped clarify what i was saying anyone else oh there are plenty of questions that's wonderful yeah look but I, I'm, I'm not gonna i look i'm not playing it because i did the same thing when i give a talk right when i when a student asks a question even at a lecture let alone a academic comment you know that's a good question i'm just saying like but i'm being mean because I, you know i'm yeah. i like a lot of what he has to say but i'm just saying this is something that we all do or all people who are giving public speeches and whatnot. But there is an element of it. Like Matt stands up and says, oh, you know, but uh, Mr. DeMello, like, you know, my kids, shouldn't I be affectionate to them? And no, shut up, Mr. Brown. Like, <laughs> I've already answered that. But that was a very good question. Thank you, Mr. Brown. And like, oh, thanks. Okay. Sit back down. Like there is an element of social manipulation to it, or not social, psychological manipulation. And and DeMello should know about this because he's talking about our conditioning and stuff. It's a positive stroke. Yeah, that's true. That's 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 true. He's being inconsistent, Chris. Inconsistent. Maybe I'm maybe I'm (laughs) the guy on the mountaintop telling him uh, (laughs) you're just playing along to your conditioning, man. You're you're all puppets in my marionette play. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you can play that game anyway, any way you want to, can't you? Because, you know, I could say to him that his idea of God is just this social conditioning that he's accepted as a reality, like the border between US and Canada, man. Yeah. What about yeah. that? And, I, you know, my, you asked for an example of like redefining concepts and I give the one of love, which led us into a tangent, right? I think this is a, a more um, relevant example of that. Are you suffering? Do you have problems? Could it be said of you that you're not enjoying every single minute of your life? Did you enjoy the last three hours, every single minute of those last three hours? If the answer is no, if the answer is you are suffering, you are disturbed, you do have problems, there's something wrong with you, seriously wrong, you're asleep, you're dead. Now, I bet that with most of you, no one has ever told you this. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, now that, that does sound an awful lot like something the Moonies would say to you on the street when they're trying to recruit you, right? Hey, you know, do you feel a bit unhappy, everything not perfectly right in your life? That's why you need to join us. Yeah. We have, we have the solutions to all of these problems. This is, a, this is a known manipulative technique of cults and also mainstream religious work. Have you ever sinned? Are you saying that you're sinless? And, you know, they'll say, have you never done the mortal sin? And then you find out that mortal sins include things that you stole, like 10 pennies from your mom's purse or whatever. And, and like, you know, in the Bible, that says that if you don't repent for that, you're going to suffer for all eternity. Are you completely confident that you've repented for oh, Chris, sin? I, I have to tell you, so my brother's a secondary a primary school teacher, and uh, like Australia doesn't, you know, in, in the public school system, it's not meant to have this kind of crap in it. But they do have these volunteer religious education teachers who come in and do stuff, but they're not supposed to be doing that kind of thing, right? But they do. And my, my, my brother showed me the leaflet they'd been handing out, and it was like a cartoon sort of friendly thing. And the title of it was, Are You a Good Person? And th mm. This is for six, seven-year-olds or whatever. Are you a good person? The little boy goes, yes, yes, I'm a good person. And then, have you ever? I forget what I forget what the uh, sins yeah, yeah. were. That's exactly you, it. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, "Oh, yeah." And that's it. It was just so manipulative, and still makes me angry thinking about it that they distribute it, that sort of stuff at schools. Look, Matt. To give a culture war example, James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian in their book "How to Have Impossible Conversations" suggest that like one tactic to have a meaningful conversation with someone who holds different ideas for you is to ask them to quantify how certain they are of their belief. And most people will not say 100%. And then from that amount that they, you can say, okay, so what would take you from like 90% to 70%? And they argue this is like a good way to engage like a meaningful conversation. N no, that's a manipulative technique that can be used in religious contexts or whatever. Like, are you certain that there is no God? Oh, you're 100% certain? What kind of scientific thing is that? You're 90%. Well, what would, yeah. you know, what would take you to 80%? It's like, it's looking for this little crack in the logic or, and, and using all of your rhetorical might to wedge that open. And it's mm. the opposite of a, a genuine encounter or discussing ideas. It's, it is 
a rhetorically manipulative technique. And Anthony DeMello's reframing of any suffering, any discomfort, any distraction as you have something seriously wrong. No, Mm. you don't. No. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and the sort of double trick to it too is that elsewhere in the lecture he says that once you've done what he's suggesting you do you're still going to feel bored and depressed and all of these negative things but they just won't matter in a kind of ineffable kind of way yeah. because you've detached from them so you know like <laughs> even <laughs> oh, anyway no you're right that's a good point to make because like yeah if, if you are consistent in applying it, you basically will say, well, you're still going to be like that, but you just <laughs> won't be as affected by it. But like, were you dissatisfied? Yes. Well, you could be enlightened or you could not be. It's it's hugely depends on your uh, reaction to that. <laughs> it's, that's right. It's not, di- it's not diagnostic. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Live yeah. by your own logic, man. <laughs> you didn't expect people 40 years later would be microanalyzing your talk. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you get. Oh, oh he's uh, he's he's looking down at us from Jesuit heaven. He, I think he forgives us, Chris. He's that kind I, of guy. Yeah, I I agree. I'm sure he would see the humor in it. And well, look. So overall, my you know, we tried to get to some nice elements or stuff that we liked. And like I said, I still find a lot of this that I find convincing or useful. Like I would, I would still recommend with all the caveats that it's an interesting thing to listen to for people, and it's certainly better than some of the culture war draws that we <laughs> listened to in recent weeks. Like, forget Brett Weinstein, just go look the mellow up. That will do your life better. But yeah. I'll play two clips. This is like on the concept of love and attachment and whatnot, and it might be a bit Buddhist, but I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this because I find this perspective actually helpful and psychologically healthy as well. How could I love you if I don't see you? Now get ready for a surprise. Generally, when I see you or you see me, we generally, we don't see one another, we're seeing an image. A husband, does he relate to his wife? or to his image of his wife? Is the wife relating to her husband or to her image of her husband? That experience is stored in my memory. I make a judgment on the basis of that experience. I'm carrying this along with me and I'm acting or reacting to you on the basis of this. Not on the basis of what you are right now. There's a picture on my window as I look through it at you. I'm looking through that picture. No clarity of perception. Well, I, I like that too, actually. That, that stood out to me as well, Chris, because, look, we're in, we're in aphorism territory here, but that's part of the course for self-helpy type stuff. But, you know, I found that helpful because, like, I'm, I'm one of those people that I'm very abstracted, I'm very absent-minded, I'm usually, like, a thousand miles away from whatever's going on around me in some way, shape, or form. And... It's actually good for someone like me to be reminded to pay attention to the, the people that, you know, particularly my family that I'm interacting with in that moment. And it sounds schmaltzy, it's whatever, but it's, it's, still, it's still good advice. It's good advice for everyone, whether it's your, your, your friends, your partner, your children or whatever. It's very, very easy to get into that routine where you do relate to them in, a, in an automatic, 
kind of way and and you're not really paying a great deal attention to them because they become like the furniture and stuff the wallpaper so that's good self-help advice which is to stop and pay attention to the people that you care about the brown household is this dark place where the universe is bleak and meaningless and you're all just the parts of the wallpaper in Matt's grand play of his life. We're getting insight, Matt. This is what self-help material is for. Uh, like, no, look, I, I know what you mean and I, I'm, I'm there with you. I think in this case, for me, a little bit more what strongly comes out of that. And, you know, I think this is the part of good self-help stuff that you can take different things from insights that are useful is that the images that we hold of other people and the things which often make us upset or disappointed are when people don't behave the way that we think that they should behave. And yes, that can be legitimate at times, but often it can be because we think that people are a certain way and people contain multitudes, right? They can be assholes, they can be surprisingly kind or so on. So being aware that even somebody that you're besotted with and obsessed with is not the image that you carry around in them in your head. I think that's, you know, useful insight that would do people well. People on Twitter as well as people in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> You just couldn't resist, could you? <laughs> <laughs> I, like, we're, we're waking up the Twitter Addy. Uh, just realize those are people on the other end of those tweets. <laughs> <laughs> and, but this this makes that, that one more clip of our play because every time now I hear somebody say something which sounds like we live in a society, you have made me think about George Costanza. <laughs> right? And every time I hear it now, it's every single talk somebody makes this point at some point in it. And and now, thanks to you, you've programmed my brain to like <laughs> internally say, we live in this society. <laughs> I'm just going to inflict that upon you uh, with this clip. Another thing that love is not, it is not dependency. Now, you know, it's very good to depend on people. We depend on one another or else we wouldn't have society. Interdependence, wonderful. We depend on the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. We depend on the pilot, on the cab driver, on all sorts of people. But to depend on another for your happiness, that is the evil. That someone would have the power to decide whether you would be happy or not. Mm. So it's okay for my wife to depend on me to unstack the dishwasher, but for nothing else, nothing, just that. <laughs> well, mainly, you know, a lot of people depend on me to make their candles. <laughs> my role in society. I want to go back to a pre-modern society where that is just, that's what I am. I'm just a candlestick maker. Maybe, oh, that... I'm, maybe the candlestick maker, do they make the candles or the things for putting the candles in? No, no, they made the candles. But oh, okay, they, right, because yeah, that's even them. one down. No, I don't yeah. make the candles. I just make the whole, I'm the candle holder maker. You want the candle stick maker. He's this kind of division of labor where someone's doing the wax and the other one's just laying out the things. And the you've Marxists got this... would not be happy with this. This is, no. you know, alienation from our products. 
I just meet the holders. I don't even know what a freaking candle is. <laughs> you know, you this know what, what sounds capitalism has done this, Matt. You know what sounds so appealing about being a candlestick maker is that I'm pretty sure there wouldn't be any Microsoft Outlook and emails and Zoom meetings and well, just meetings generally, especially modern meetings. Modern candlestick making is mostly Zoom meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else has been automated. It's yeah. just the Zoom meetings. <laughs> Like product design meetings and <laughs> discussing the latest 3D printer. That's like, right. Discussing how we're going to position ourselves and appeal to the <laughs> mid-20s demographic. Yeah, it's much yeah. less fun now. Yeah. yeah. So, sorry, you can't even be an innocent <sighs> candlestick holder. We need to burn it. We need to burn it all down and go back, Chris. <laughs> I agreed. Agreed. That's one thing that I think we can all <laughs> agree on. Uh well, Matt, so that was my positive thing. Did you have anything positive to say? Or is it just relentless cynicism from you today? Oh, you know that. You're the cynical one. Don't, don't try to externalize that, Chris. No, look, my take's the same as yours, I think, on this one. Yeah, like I, as I said a few times, I liked his, his aphorisms and his advice. As long as you take it purely on a psychological level, don't take it to the extreme. You know, I don't, I don't agree with what he's saying about don't be emotionally attached to your family and kids don't need to have any kind of socialization. <laughs> you know, kids should just be engaging with their inner spirit and rather than being socialized. And socialization does involve some rewards and negatives. So essentially, I'm not on board with that religious mystic aspect of it. But purely as self-help, then... I thought, yeah, I don't, like you, I'd actually recommend this to people who, you know, this would be particularly good advice for someone who is, is maybe super obsessed with success and stuff like that and is feeling dissatisfied and a bit empty about it. Or people that are kind of socially anxious and worry too much about what other people think of them and maybe need to be talked down a bit from that. So, yeah, and that, yeah. I'd, I'd prefer this to the Jordan Peterson style of Christianity, right? Like yeah. this is much less about Christian exceptionalism much more syncretic and uh, world religion-y mysticness, yeah, which yeah. I, I appreciate it doesn't have the cultural chauvinism. It's it's like drawing examples from That's right. old traditions. That's right. It doesn't have any of that baggage. It doesn't have the political undertones. It doesn't have any of that stuff. So it's kind of clean. And like I said, like I've got you know family members who, who are super into this whole way of thinking yeah this is like it's just like a super modern form of catholicism um, which is sort of merged with spirituality and also as it happens with social justice type concerns and while my rationalist bro kind of <laughs> sciencey type cynical persona recoils from that fluffy duffy stuff in my experience the people who are into that stuff are pretty nice and pretty groovy and uh yeah i got no problems with it yeah, so like I think maybe a good place to end for old DeMello would be to let him play one of his little stories, uh, parables, right? Uh, that's, this one is about an old Jewish rabbi. Enjoy, Matt. I'm reminded of the Jewish rabbi who had served God faithfully all his life. And he said one day to God, God, I have been a devout worshiper and I have kept the law as best I could, and I've been a good Jew. Now I'm old, and I need some help. Let me win the lottery. 
<laughs> will help for my old age. Well, he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And one month went by and two and three and five and a whole year went by and three years went by. And the man in desperation one day said, God, give me a break. And God said, give me a break yourself. Buy a ticket. <laughs> uh, I mean, those are quality dad jokes, Chris. You have to, yeah. you have to hand it to just, him. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like an antidote from Scott Adams or <laughs> Brett Weinstein and Russell Brown crossing over to discuss ivermectin. Like, oh, just, like, just enjoy a stupid joke that yeah. doesn't tie into culture war stuff. It's It's just a little... Priest it's, having a bad joke. Yeah, it's refreshing, isn't it? Like he comes across as a as a nice guy and not someone who's a dick. And yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, maybe that's the lesson at the end of this. Like <laughs> he's not a dick, <laughs> and I'm really we we should thank him for that. <laughs> 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 and we do, and we do. Thank you, Chris, yeah. for recommending Demello. I it was great to get a blast from your past and also from the eighties. A simple time, um, a simpler time I, indeed. Yeah, I know that I wasn't listening to this in the eighties. Let's be clear, I'm not that old, man. I'm not your age. Oh, oh right, right. <laughs> I, I was, uh, but a young child <laughs> in the 80s like i was born in 1983 so i wasn't into christian mysticism in that era so i i came across this later in life mm. but um, yeah you were precocious yeah. but not that precocious yeah yeah okay that's, i know that's that's, that's cool don't worry nobody thinks you're old chris nobody thinks you're old it's okay <laughs> they do matt sometimes people you know on our patreon or whatever and like fucking hell look at look what chris actually looks like compared to what he sounds like they're they're not they're saying it in a good way right i don't mean it in like how horrifying i mean that they are like I thought he was an old, angry Irish man. Oh. They, they don't expect me to be such a youthful, handsome. Mm. You have the voice of a man who's been smoking and drinking whiskey for 30 years, but it's not. I've been in the culture war for a long time, <laughs> man. <laughs> I've okay, seen warm see. discourse. Two plus two equals five. <laughs> the horror. The horror. <laughs> Those things. That's <laughs> they stay with you. They stay with you. you. Like you come back to society, but you know they can't understand what it's like. <laughs> I try to tell everyone. I try to tell them, <laughs> but they don't care about it. No, no, you can't talk about it. That's how it goes. You can't talk about it. They ask me what it was like. <laughs> I can't talk. Well, look. So, bye, bye, Demello. Back in the annals of my memory logs, and hello, our next jaunt in the personal guru sphere is into Matthew's personal guru, also a guru of mine, although I haven't really listened that much of his content. It's more, he's like a kind of just a figure on posters or whatnot, but the one Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. <laughs> yep. Of <laughs> Demon Haunted World and what was that? Uh, like documentary series uh, the cosmos right yeah the cosmos yeah the book and the tv series so yeah i i liked him when i was a lad but i haven't consumed any of his content for 
25 years or more, I don't know, since I was since I grew up, really. It might uh, make an interesting contrast with DeMello, right, the week after, because yeah. he presumably won't have so much of the spiritual <laughs> stuff. But he does have a spiritual element to his content, right? The like, kind true. of cosmic, we yeah. are all star stuff. Yeah, yeah, groovy. Looking forward to it. Yeah, and <laughs> I'll just note that we had considered doing Dawkins, but as the content that we were considering with Dawkins is his crossover with one Brett Weinstein. We, we will get to that, but not not just now. Just give us a break. Give us a break. I can't deal with any more controversy yeah, for a little right while. And Richard Dawkins is is a man that is prone to his hot take. So he... we'll, we'll get him, but not this week. So yeah. Oh, Matt. Reviews. Reviews. Ah, reviews. The, the feud continues with internet favorite philosopher Liam Bright. I I can only decipher that him because it is from Final Anti Negativist again. It's another one star review, but he deleted his older one. So at least there's that. He's not bombing oh. us with one star reviews. <laughs> oh, okay. But I I don't know if you've seen this or not, but here allow me to deliver it to you. Help a philosopher out. Since my ability to perform induction has been called into question, I hope the host could be so kind as to lend me a hand. If so far, every Australian I have encountered has been a liar, quotation marks, drop bears, overestimated their ability to run a good barbecue, and let's be real, being kind of racist. What should I infer about the next Australian podcaster I happen to encounter? Mm. So this was him responding to my... Mm, accusation that he didn't understand induction properly, but he's explained, he clearly has a firm gr- grasp of it there. Also on Twitter, I asked him how science works, and his response was, step one, put a shrimp on the barbie. Step two, exclaim, crikey, she's a beaut. Three, get punched out by a kangaroo. So he's got a very clear understanding of how science works as well. Um, mm-hmm. Look, I, I have to say, Chris, I I think it was the really... The one stars, um, which really underlined the moral force of his arguments. I said as much to him. <laughs> and even though I'm tempted to debate some of those points, I, I feel like it wouldn't be in the best interest of the cast, although he, he's deleting them, which is good. Um, but, <laughs> well, but, but, but if we say something nice and maybe concede the ground utterly and his absolute rightness and all things, he might give us a five-star review. Mm, yeah, which would just be we'd just be psychologically manipulating him. He'd be our little dancing puppet in our <laughs> play, um, yes. and we wouldn't do that to him because we respect him too much. So, yes, I I think you're gonna have to allow him to win the battle, even though you know he's just he, look. Matt, I will say in his favor, he's took it down to the level of reality. He's talking about Australians, what they're always up to. This is my experience with Australians too. They never shut up about barbecues, drop air, nonsense. This is the one joke they have. And, <laughs> um, and yeah, like, I don't know. I think he's he's got a point about in, induction there. It's over my head, all this induction debating, bashing, but like, but on the slamming Australians, I'm with him. <laughs> it's Look, it's impossible to offend Australians because whatever you say about us, we just appreciate the attention. So just any 
any kind of reference to an Australian cultural artifact. You've, it's already a win for us. So if, yeah, we, we, can, we can't stop winning. So, so thanks, Liam. That was good feedback. You are right about everything and particularly about Australians. Okay, two more, two more. Uh, one, one star, negative, quite short. At least they put us out of our misery quite uh, quickly. It reads as just pathetic by Anon73882. Yeah, you would be anonymous, wouldn't you, with this kind of feedback? But anti intellectual grifters, nothing of value. Well, 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 Anon, that's that's (laughs) valuable feedback. We'll we'll take it under advertisement. Anti intellectual, that that stings. Yeah. Yeah, that does sting. It stings. It's a little too close to the truth for my liking. But, it it uh, particularly, it also stings being called a grifter, given that I haven't seen any Patreon money yet. It's, uh, it's so unfair. Don't you worry about the Patreon so, money. Don't you worry. Uh, you, you, in, you're keeping it in safekeeping somewhere. Uh, as Father Ted said, it's just resting in the account. We'll, <laughs> we'll let you add it when, when when it's necessary. Don't don't worry about that. All right, or your all pretty right. head. Okay, okay. <laughs> now, the next review, much better, much more insightful, by Laminx. Five stars. Look at that. And the title is Relatively Painless. <laughs> <laughs> the podcasts are long, but less painful than having to listen to the torturous podcasts of the gurus they review. I might take a look at Candy, though. He wrote Candy. I don't know. That might be a slam on the way I pronounced it. Can't tell. Um also, when some friends were warbling about Sam Harris, I had no idea who he was is. After listening to the Harris episode in DTG, I feel like I know him far more intimately than I would like. Mm. So that's well, true. We're intimately introducing people to Sam Harris's mental world. That's our allotment in life, Matt. Well, my favorite part of that review was that he referred to our podcast as relatively painless, which I'd like to think is a play on... The mostly, mostly harmless. harmless entry for Earth in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and if so, that was extraordinarily good job. Well done. Good job, Lamanx. Good job. But we're we're running out of reviews. We we need more. Come <sighs> look to at that. Go. That's an incentive. If you leave a review, you are guaranteed guaranteed to have it read out <laughs> very shortly. Right. Yeah, yeah. You're guaranteed. You'll be <laughs> featured. You'll be invited for interviews. Uh, contact Matthew. <laughs> no. um, yes, but we do appreciate them, so so please do. And we have a bunch of interviews to be released over the next while, so you will be hearing from us again before you hear the Carl Sagan episode. But before we finish, Matt, we need to thank the people that pay at least one of us money. <laughs> 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 for their, their services. Uh, so our Patreons, Matt. And what a lively Patreon we have where we post content and various things and there's interviews released early and you can see our faces if you want. It's a it's a lovely place, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's right. You can't get that kind of experience for free on Reddit or anything. Um, you, have to, you have to get into the Patreon. You've got to pay the money. That's right. Oh, and yeah. also to mention, Tim Nguyen, was interviewed on a podcast called Eigen Bros, where he went into the the mathematical details of his criticism of geometric unity, which he didn't cover in our podcast. And it's it's very nice. So if you wanted more details about the actual technical information about the criticism, there's a two-hour video where he goes through them all in detail on Eigen Bros. That's the name of the podcast. Great. Um, again, Matt, 
I'm in a file where I've got none of the freaking things highlighted. So here we go. We're going to hope that we're hitting people that we haven't got before. I think I can remember the names I've said. First up is Conspiracy Hypothesizers, Noreen Bowden, and Felicia Balcom. Oh, sorry. I can't do that. Noreen Bowden, Conspiracy Hypothesizer first. Thank you. Every great idea starts with a minority of one. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. And the mistake I made, Matt, of course, was that Felicia is a revolutionary thinker, not a conspiracy hypothesis. Oh, sorry, Felicia, on behalf of Chris. Yes, he's, he's mm. deeply sorry for that. And here is the correct clip to be played after a revolutionary thinker. Maybe you can spit out that hydrogenated thinking and let yourself feed off of your own thinking. What you really are is an unbelievable thinker and researcher, a thinker that the world doesn't know. Okay. Nice. Now, we also have Max Plan, who is a galaxy brain guru. Rare, rare, but they do exist. He's added to the oh. constellation. Is is that a high tier? I forget the tiers. That is the highest tier, Matt. Oh That's my goodness! The, oh my god! The, thank you. Yeah, here, here, and and here is his incredible reward. <laughs> you're sitting on one of the great scientific stories that I've ever heard, and you're so polite. And hey, wait a minute! Am I an expert? I kind of am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't trust people. Oh, at we all. shouldn't be. We shouldn't be punishing people <laughs> at the high. We should. We could be scaring people off the high tier there, Chris. Yeah, we but. gotta. We gotta that freaking laugh. Okay, last two conspiracy hypothesizers that I'll put together just because they appear together on the this document. Uh, one is Tina Matthews, and the other is Bertie Van Soest. Both conspiracy. I'm not laughing at his name. I'm laughing at my pronunciation. It might be Bertha. Uh, so uh, apologies. In your case, you're both conspiracy hypothesizers. Thank you. Every great idea starts with a minority of one. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. Here we are, Matt. That's uh, shout outs for today. By the way, am I ever going to get a shout out? Because I'm like I'm, I'm like a top tier Patreon of our own podcast. That's so right. I, so, you can, so you can participate in the, <laughs> because of the server stuff. It only lets you come in if you're a, a Galaxy Brain contributor, or it only mm. allows one of our accounts to be a host. It's a yeah. it's a sacrifice you make, Matt. Um, <laughs> you yeah yeah you know what, Matt? You are here. Thank you. You are a Galaxy Brain Guru. Thank oh. you, Matthew Smith. Ah, oh, you're so welcome. You're sitting on one of the you're great welcome. scientific you're stories very welcome that I've this. ever heard. And I'm happy you're to. So happy polite. to be. And hey, wait a minute. Are you am an I an expert? expert? I kind of am. I, I really am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't trust people. Well, I gotta at say, all. I gotta say that makes a subscription all worthwhile. Having <laughs> yeah. that for me. It's, and, <laughs> yeah, it was worth it. It was worth it. And you will be available at the end of this month again for the like monthly call-in chat live stream thingamajigger. So that's that's your reward for paying that monthly $10. <laughs> so thank you, Matthew. 
and, and and this has been fun. And thank you for not tearing apart my personal guru. He, he got off relatively lightly. I was probably more harsher than you were. Yeah, yeah, you're probably paying closer attention than me. He's, uh, yeah, I, I liked him. He's all right. He's a good bloke. So, uh, yeah, you know, and look at the fine fellow you've grown up to be. So he couldn't have yeah. done, he can't be doing that much harm. True, true. He's, he's done one thing good in his life. Influence a young teenage me. Yeah. Oh, oh, by the way, one notification I want to give to people. If you don't see me, it's mainly Chris, right, who's interacting on the Patreon account. And there's a reason for that, which is that, they have a verification thing where the verification has to go to, I just realized it goes to decoding the gurus at gmail.com, which I could check, but I don't. So that doesn't really work. I'm uh, glad you give people that <laughs> notification, Matt. That's a very important clarification. So did everyone get that? It's mainly me that does all the work on the Patreon because Matt could log in if he checked the email account, but but he doesn't do that. So, so. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. That's, I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, Matt, uh, good point to finish on. <laughs> and as per usual, I will advise you to grovel at the feet of your muscle master. Why not? I'm not doing anything this weekend, so I'll take that advice. Back right. Enjoy. When the heart is unobstructed, the result is love. In my country, the poets and the mystics put it so beautifully. They say, is it possible for a rose to say, I will give my fragrance to good people and hold it, withhold it from bad people? The rose by its very nature cannot but love all. Is it possible for a lamp lit in the night to say, I will give my light to the good people in this room and withhold it from the bad? Is it possible for a tree to say, I will give my shade to the good people who sit under me but withhold it from the bad? It cannot. And the poet Kabir will say, the tree will give its shade even to the man who is striking it down and if it is a sweet-smelling tree, it will leave its scent on the axe.